This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Our guest consists of experts like the world's leading authority on long-term economic growth, Bob Gordon. We will continue to see jobs created rather than destroyed. Former chair of the Federal Reserve, Janet Yellen. I mean, I don't think either of us ever expected that we would live through a financial crisis. Or even the head of the Digital Indian Foundation, Arvind Gupta. The reason that people are talking about India is massive digitization and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years. Enjoy this week's show. Welcome back to Behind the Markets here on Sirius XM 132. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. My guest for the next half hour is going to be Brendan Ryan, who's a partner and portfolio manager at Beaumont Capital Management. Welcome to Behind the Markets, Brendan. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Jeremy. I should note our discussion is not tied to the offer of save investment products and the views of our guests are their own and not those of Wizard Chiefs affiliates. Why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, how you got to Beaumont Capital Management, and then we can talk a little bit about uh, what Beaumont does. Yeah, sure. So I've actually been with Beaumont in one form or another since college. Um, that's, you know, a lot longer in the past than it than it feels like already for me, but um, when I first got there, the firm was predominantly an RIA wealth management business. But after 2008, they saw this demand with their own clients to have more tactical strategies, the ability to get more completely in or out of the market than, um, than you're going to get from a normal kind of investment mandate. So that spurned the creation of what is now Beaumont Capital Management, where they started creating these separate account strategies um, that were fully tactical, eventually selling those outside the firm as well, so becoming an asset management firm. The strategies were initially pretty simplistic, trend following, as you can imagine, that was kind of that was pretty beneficial uh, if you're looking back on 08. Um, but it's evolved to become significantly more sophisticated today, where we're using machine learning strategies, incorporating multiple factors, and, and kind of it's an ongoing process to keep up with the technology. And that growth has created an entirely new firm. Beaumont Capital has now split from the prior RIA. So we're a standalone business and, and completely third party now. So when you think about um, the, the, that background and, and, and how you're managing portfolios, I mean, today's markets, there's been a lot of volatility in, in, in the markets. And, and you think about tactical asset allocation, some people think about that as a, a word for market timing. How do you guys think about tactical asset allocation and, and the type of signals you want to employ to navigate these, these markets? Yeah, so market timing is sort of a scary word for me because I think we both know how difficult that is to do. Um, and Trend following is one way that people try to do that. It's, it's a pretty simplistic way, but it's pretty effective, and it at best should be pretty good at mitigating losses. Um, our models are more marginal than that now. They're not complete. They're not making these massive asset allocation bets typically, but kind of gravitating between a static asset allocation. So if you have a moderate model, you're a 50-50, and when it's a kind of a more risk-on environment, maybe you're a 70-30, and when it's risk-off, maybe you're a 30-70. So not making such a big bet that if you make a mistake in a market like March, it's going to blow up your 
performance for years. But as I mentioned, now it's a machine learning model, so it's not really following a simple factor to time the market, if you will, but it's looking at different sectors of the economy relative to one another and also um, relative to themselves over time to find kind of outliers. And really the whole model, any, any quant model essentially, if it's successful, it's designed to buy things that human investors are going to find attractive in the future. So we've built these models to kind of, we, we tell the computer when it's looking for these patterns um, how we think people think. And kind of the most straightforward way of thinking about that is loss aversion. So if we know, if a computer knows that people hate losing money and you tell a computer to look at the past and find the best strategy for not losing money, typically, or we think that you're going to have a pretty consistent model that's going to be able to tell what securities people might buy or sell. That's just one simple example of a model. But even though pattern recognition, machine learning, these are really complicated terms, I think when we're buying a security or going overweight a certain sector or underweight, it does typically fall into kind of two broad categories, which most people are familiar with now, and that's momentum and value. So typically we'll hold some positions for longer periods of time that have done really well. Technology is the obvious example now, and that kind of falls into momentum. We think that continues to exist because people underappreciate long-term trends. I think we've, we would have been talking about these FANG stocks five years ago saying, when is this going to end? And it's continued as well. And then on the value side, you kind of have the opposite side where a lot of investors are myopic. So things get punished in the short term and perhaps unduly, even though something bad has happened and that provides more of a, a short-term opportunity for the model. So I think the, the example for us and for everybody listening is, is more like the oil sector right now. It had, you know, you had essentially the worst news possible and all of this flood of supply. And at the same time, you've got less demand from coronavirus. The stocks got crushed. Oil got crushed. But as a result of that, you're probably also going to get this future rationalization of supply because of all the companies going out of business and whatnot. So you had this massive drawdown, but now a lot of these companies have recovered, or at least their stocks have recovered, and the oil price is higher as well. But this is more of a, I think our model would gravitate, would classify that as value, and it'd be more of a short-term um, pick than something like technology, where you can ride this massive trend for longer periods of time. There's a lot to drill in on some of these specifics. And as you talk about the, the sort of machine learning model, is that specific to the tactical signals uh, that you think about how do you sort of up, up, you know, up your equity exposure, decrease your equity exposure to try to avoid some of those losses? Or is it also in, in picking some of those rotations? And, and how do you think about the, the challenges of machine learning, which um, you know, some people call black box and, and you don't know what's coming out and what's really driving? Or, or are you trying to keep it sort of more of these like supervised machine learning that, get, that gets sort of a little bit more specific than, than the sort of more unstructured types of models there? Yeah, so... It's definitely supervised, but I think you're right. Machine learning is not, I, I, I'll always say, if you give a computer enough data and you tell it to find a solution, it's going to find a solution. The way that we think that 
our solution is good or will be consistent is because of those behavioral finance aspects that we've built the model around. So as I, I mentioned, loss aversion is one example. So instead of just telling, in a really simple way, instead of just telling the model to find the best return, we'll say, you know, find the best return you can while you minimize losses four times. And we think that's more representative of how, you know, one individual investor might be looking at the market and then perhaps you find better patterns and less of those spurious correlations or unconnected um, patterns that you can get from data mining, which is obviously that's your biggest risk in machine learning. There's more computing power. There's more data than ever. As I said before, if you put that together, you're going to get a result. That doesn't mean it's a good result. Um, so we have this grounding in behavioral finance that we built the models around looking for um, securities that we think other people are going to be looking for, that people are going to be looking for. And then second, now that we've been running the model live, we can actually do out-of-sample testing. So when you build any machine learning model, all you can do is look at the past and try to create the best interpretation of that possible, and you hope it works going forward. But we built that model seven years ago now, so we can go back and look at and this is, I think, one big advantage of a quantitative strategy versus a fundamental strategy is we can look at so many data points. So we have 110 ETFs in our, in our strategy, and every single one of them is ranked every single day. So that's a massive amount of data to determine if we've been successful, if the model is working in real time. Whereas if I'm a fundamental investor, you know, you could have a portfolio manager that owns a hundred stocks and one of them is Amazon and he was slightly overweighted and he might beat his benchmark, but he might be wrong on 75 of the other 99. And perhaps if I'm allocating to someone like that in the future, I may not want to because you could, you know, there's this perception of luck that's, it's hard to avoid for any strategy, but I think for a quantitative strategy, that is a major advantage we have in kind of evaluating the efficacy of our model. We're talking with Brendan Ryan, his portfolio manager at Beaumont Capital Management, about uh, their tactical asset allocation models, how they think about building these, the signals, uh, interesting machine learning approach to ranking. Uh, when, when, Brendan, when you think about the market environment we're in today, you know, one of the things we've, we've focused on behind the markets here a bunch is you know, the standard asset allocation mix is your standard 60-40 portfolio, that's 60% equities, 40% in bonds. And you know, it seems challenged today. You have equity markets at highs, you have bonds, the 10-year bond is sub-60 basis points as of uh, our conversation here right now. I mean, how do you think about that and, and where your tactical allocation approach fits into that? Yeah, so this low interest rate environment isn't necessarily something new. We've kind of, everyone's been talking about this for years, but now with rates so low, like you just said, 60 basis points on a 10-year, you're kind of approaching, I think, a theoretical lower bound there, at least, given that, you know, we're now approaching negative real rates. So, it's hard to see bonds going significantly lower in negative territory. Of course it's possible, but it sort of doesn't matter if I'm a 60-40 investor because the 40% of that portfolio is going to be anchored to the return of, of treasuries. So if you look at 60-40 over time and you have your starting 10-year treasury yield on the x-axis and do a linear regression with the return of a 60-40 – you have a pretty linear relationship that 
the six the performance of any sixty forty is going to be anchored to interest rates. There's really no way around that. So right now, with interest rates as low as they are, we think there's a pretty big temptation to take more risk. Now, some people take it just by adding credit risk, so they say they still have a sixty forty, but maybe half of their 40s in high yield or something, or maybe they're just going to an 80-20 and taking more aggregate risk. I think in today's environment that that could be foolish, at least in the short term, because of everything that's going on in the economy. But I think perhaps on the on the part about taking credit risk on your fixed income side is that you're just sort of fooling yourself if you're doing that because the credit risk is going to be correlated to equities anyway. You saw that in March. The beauty of a 60-40 is that the 40% of your portfolio that's in treasury should hold up or even appreciate when equity markets are doing poorly, but credit, even investment-grade credit, was down almost 20% in March, so now you're not getting that rebalance where you get to buy into more equities um, low that, that really benefits a 60-40 over time. So we think with that temptation in mind, um, people need to be careful, but at the same time, with rates so low and equities, even after this rebound, if the P.E. on the stock market is 25, that's still a yield of 4%. So equities to fixed income are still undeniably relatively attractive, despite all the volatility that we're probably going to continue to have. So there is, I think a pretty strong case to be made for prudent risk-taking on a 60-40 to try to get um, a better return. And of course, at the end of the day, that's either stock selection or or, um, market timing. And we're kind of more in the market timing asset allocation standpoint there where we think, you know, if you have a 60-40 and we can nudge you up uh, or down 10 or 20 percent at the right time you want to be in equities, hopefully we can get you a better result and better, closer to a little bit closer to maybe the historical numbers that a lot of uh, investment plans are built on. Maybe you could give us a little bit of uh, a look under the hood and say, you know, how is that model, you know, the 60-40, if you're shifting it up or down, how does it look today? And then how often do you anticipate it changing? Is it happening? It could happen a few times a month, is it a few times a quarter. You know, what's, what's the expected ramp up and, and ramp down and maybe even talking through your experience this year, potentially? Yeah, so... We have a model that's about a 50-50 and about a 70-30. All our models are are pretty active in terms of trading versus, I think, more typical asset allocation models, which may be reset quarterly or something. Um, We can trade as frequently as weekly. We end up trading a little more than a month at a time, probably. And if I'm thinking about the 50-50 portfolio, we call that the moderate the baselines of 50-50, we can be up to 100% in equity or theoretically up to 100% in fixed income, but it really gravitates within a band of about 20%. So as kind of a pretty good live example, the moderate model was about 30% equity in the middle of March, which is obviously defensive, but not 100% um, fixed income. And then in May, as equity markets rebounded, we kind of followed along, and and the moderate model was actually 100% equity. So it all amounted to essentially an average asset allocation that was probably like a 60-40, but you were able to cut out a little bit of the downside and and capture a little bit of this crazy equity run we've been on the last couple months as well. Um, So again, it's 
we 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 do make large shifts and we can make them quickly, but over time it, it's more of an ebbing and flowing uh, philosophy, I think. Yeah, and, and and when you think about how that fits for people, I mean, are you are you seeing people use this as their primary way of allocating? Is it something just to complement um, people's portfolios as a way to 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 manage this uh, this more active asset allocation? Yeah, we we definitely encourage it as a complement. So we think of it being kind of the ballast between a strategic portfolio. So again, if you're starting with that contemporary sixty forty. Maybe you add a quarter or a third of us, and, and we're going to kind of move uh, opportunistically up and down. Um, but you'll have that core strategic allocation in place, so your your end client's not going to get a hugely volatile result against their own expectations. And because we're going to behave so differently from those strategic positions uh, with such low correlation, you're going to get kind of a, a tertiary or a secondary rebalancing benefit that that you get with a 60-40 normally with the bonds and fixed income, but we're a third factor that should also behave neither like neither of those. Um, so it, it can dampen the overall volatility of a portfolio even more than, than the model itself can in that construct. Now, uh, you know, one of the big questions also has been just the U.S. dominance of everything else around the world. Uh, how do you see that from clients you're talking to? And uh, how do the models look today? Do they how, how global are they? How global are they typically? You know, what's what's the sense for U.S. versus foreign markets? Yeah. So this this has been this massive wave and the U.S. tech companies, I think, are driving almost all of it. But it's been pretty much a one way train and in, in in, equ- in equity markets for U.S. the last 10 years, and I think that's created a bit of a hindsight bias for people now. Um, of course, like a lot of these things, we could have said that five years ago, too, and been wrong, but if you looked at the 10 years prior to this year coming in, you would have saw the exact opposite situation. So 2000 to 2010, if you look at basically all major equity asset classes, the S&P 500 is actually the worst performing. We know why. There was two bubbles during that time in the biggest, two of the biggest sectors in technology and then in financials. So emerging markets outperformed, international outperformed, equal weighting, small cap did better than um, large cap, and now we've seen the total opposite. So I think it's just a good historical context for people to think that trends don't continue forever and not every paradigm will look exactly like the one you were just in, but from our and and maybe you can already tell that we're a little bit biased or kind of wishful hoping that international equities will play more of a factor because it's just another thing that our models can be additive in um by default we're a global asset allocation so we're close to that 60 percent u.s 40 percent international in terms of what the model can pick from now it's it's gotten it right and that it's been predominantly in U.S. equities, and it's like the tech sector, but we're, we're hoping we're kind of sitting on a, a coiled spring, if you will, and that we have all these options in the pool that for 10 years now haven't really been useful investments. Now, I don't know, and I don't know if anyone knows what the catalyst could be for international stocks doing better. It, you know, at this point, it probably has to have something to do with U.S. tech getting weaker, but... Um, Maybe kind of what's going on now with the coronavirus could be that catalyst, but 
you know, it, at, at some point they will uh, they will be a useful additive part of a total asset allocation. We, we talked a little bit about how the models you favor tactical asset allocation and sort of moving in and out on a sort of styling up and down, down the equity bond mix. And here we're talking a little bit about uh, the, the rotation between U.S. and foreign. You, you talked earlier that the model sometimes goes between momentum and value in, in sectors. Is that going to be a similar process going internationally that is going to sometimes pick the the hot segments of the, uh, you know, sort of what's performing well on momentum basis and then sort of what's hated on, on a value basis also? Yeah, I think so. I think um, I don't often think of it in the way that you do think of those academic factors as a momentum and value, but it's more on a selection basis. So longer term trends, things that are things that are sort of beating to their own drum, but also doing so in a pretty stable, predictable manner. Um, something like tech is is definitely the obvious example there. That's what ends up as a momentum pick for us. So for something internationally to come up like that, it, it will probably have to behave that way, at least for a short period of time. And then the value is, again, more stuff that, that's been beaten down, but also um, also doesn't look like a lot of other things. So correlation is kind of this extra factor that's really important to our model. If, you're, if, you're, if you look like if you're a value-type stock or equity, and you look like a lot of other things, or, or it, it seems like the market's just selling more broadly these assets down rather than one particular unique circumstance like oil-type companies I mentioned earlier. That doesn't see as favor as often in the model. Um, and again, it works the same way with momentum. So I think if I'm thinking about international markets now, where we've dipped in the past, Europe is kind of has been more of a value trade at times. And then um, at, at least recently we're starting to see um, maybe China could begin to become classified as kind of one of those more momentum trades as it's now done pretty consistently well for the last six months or so. So maybe that will emerge into a bigger long-term trend. And that certainly fits into this coronavirus narrative a bit too. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's interesting when I, when I when I look at the big markets around the world, you have U.S. tech dominating. China tech is perhaps an extension of what's going on in right. the U.S. And uh, you know it's going to be interesting. With I mean, for sure, the election is uh, you know all we, every day headlines we see on China. It's been a great conversation, Brendan Ryan, Beaumont Capital Management. Beaumont's been a, a client of Wisdom Tree. Thanks for appearing on the show for us today. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to Behind the Markets on SiriusXM 132. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. Thanks to our producer, Patty Hall, our sound engineer, Dion Simpkins. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. Insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.